Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right. So we're in Numbers 33 tonight. We're picking up where we left off last week. Um, Only, not really, um, the chapter Numbers 33 is like a brand new book. And you can see that in the first couple words. These are the journeys. So Numbers as a larger book has kind of ended at the end of Numbers 32. And then what we see at the end are two like addendums to the book. So Moses as a writer would have had lots of scrolls. At some point, scrolls got combined. So as scroll technology improved, there would have been things added. Um, But Numbers 33, and and really not even the whole chapter, is a particular kind of thing. But let's start with the word. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting points. So a few things in the first couple of verses. Moses and Aaron are named as the generals or as the leaders. And um, this is done at the command of the Lord. So at some point, Moses is claiming God told him to write this, which is kind of interesting because there's no conjunction here with the prior chapter. It's its own thing that God, that Mo, that God told Moses to write this piece Um, And it covers the whole 40 years of wanderings in the desert. So it's a giant review night for us um, in in some ways. What's interesting about this first part of uh, 33 is that it looks just like almost every ancient civilization of this period of time. The Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Egyptians all wrote these documents when a military general would go out on a campaign. So Moses being trained in the court of Pharaoh would have known how to write this document, but it was a thing. Like if we have a writ of habeas corpus or we have a mortgage statement, it's a legal document that as a culture was known back then, but because they didn't have telephones or iPhones, the generals couldn't like write a note back to the king. So when they came back from 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 a campaign, they would have this kind of document that they would bring to the king showing here's what happened on the, on the campaign. Um, so everything about this is written in that same format, and there's tons of examples in the ancient world where you can compare it to that. This is then the official record, the record of rights and the record of wrongs. What happened, and, and it's the record that's given from the general to the king. Um, and it's a ledger, and it's going to go through verse 50. And that's going to be the first addendum. I mean, at 49, at verse 50, that starts through there through the end of the book of Numbers is the second addendum. So if you want to put a little line between 49 and 50, you'll kind of see that marker there. So if you could mute that, that'd be great. Uh, not necessarily uh, something, therefore, that there's a lot of meaning laced into this. Or at least I try to stay true to what the writer was trying to say. And I don't think in this Moses is trying to say a lot, but there are some really interesting messages here. Other books, it's really clear that Moses is trying to communicate an idea. 
And even in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, all of this is written down for our learning and instruction. So even this is here for our instruction in some way, shape, or form. But the grand narrative or even that spiritual look at numbers where this is our the preparation of our heart to be with God and to be in God's promised land, that kind of narrative or that spiritual overtone kind of goes away in this chapter because this is just a military document. Um, and as you're glancing down through it, you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be a long night tonight because uh, it just goes from town to town to town to town. And that's kind of the format of the chapter. So that's the setup. Um, it says in the first two verses that Moses wrote this down, verse 2. It's the only place in the book of Numbers where Moses gives himself credit for what he's doing. Why would he do that? Part of why he would do that is in this case, he's doing it as the military general of the Israelites. So he's doing it in the format of this kind of particular style of writing where you name the generals. Um, another interesting piece is Aaron as a high priest is named as one of the generals in the spot where that would go in this kind of document. In other words, in God's kingdom, not only does the civic leader get credit, but the spiritual leader is there too. So with Israel, it's more than just about military conquests. It's also about a spiritual conquest that's happening in the world. And by naming Aaron, Moses puts that's one of the little twists he puts on that you don't see in the Egyptian kind of documents um, where they would name their spiritual leaders. So verse 3, they departed from Ramses in the first month. That'd be the capital of Egypt. And on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. So this goes back to, if you want your cross-reference notes, Exodus 12, verse 29. Uh, there was a Passover night. Firstborn in every household dies, just as a reminder. So this is kind of a, a year in review for us, almost. The point Moses goes out of his way to make is that they went out with boldness. There was no sneaking, no fighting, no conflict. They just got up, stood out, and left. And I think that's a really, first of all, that idea of total boldness when somebody first gets saved from their slavery, there's this excitement about it, but it happens with complete and total boldness. An announcement that I'm free is really, with God's help, all it takes to get outside of that life of sin. I'm free from it. I'm walking away through God's power and God's grace. I'm going to do it. So after those miracles happen, Pharaoh's power just evaporates in a second. They go out with boldness. Um, and, and just a side note, because it is political season right now, what they got in trouble for in Egypt, if you remember, is they wanted to worship together. And Pharaoh wouldn't let them. And God, wouldn't, or God didn't like the idea that here's a civic leader saying the people of God cannot gather and sing songs together. God moves in those moments in pretty powerful ways. And it's really interesting right now for me, and I won't get any deeper into politics tonight because we'll do that afterwards. <laughs> We're living in a country right now where the civic leaders are telling churches they can't meet and they can't assemble and they can't worship. Regardless of the reason or the excuses they come up with, we're living in that kind of country right now, which makes it really interesting to see what's God going to do now. Because when God's people are told they can't worship together, God tends to move in those situations. Because when it's beyond the power of the people to get things done, God steps in and does it for them. So I'm curious, and I'm watching the news every day to see what's going to happen with that. And what happened with that, if you want to grab one, we got our new magazines in. A thousand people got baptized in California. I mean, it's just crazy because God's already moving. And which state has the most restrictive policies for churches? California. When and So I'm kind of like, yeah, you try to shut down our churches and let's watch what happens. Because in that case, it's not even our battle anymore. It's God's battle. You want to pick a fight with God? 
you go for it. I'm going to stand over on this side of the line and I'm going to be with God. And when that happens, I don't want to be over in that side of things. So it's a really interesting situation. So that's where this all got started. They wanted to go worship. Pharaoh said no. That's the beginning of our story. Verse 4, For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn in the process of it, whom the Lord had killed among them, and also their gods the Lord had executed. Also on their gods the Lord had executed judgments. That is phrased in such a way in the Hebrew that it's as though God killed their gods. Like they were real, and God executed a judgment upon them to the point of death. He killed their gods. And through all the miracles, if you remember, we want to go back to that. That's why I'm naming the chapters. You can go back and kind of listen to those chapters when we covered them. But those plagues had everything to do with the Egyptian gods. So God took all of them out, and then he took the firstborn from every family. So not only were the gods judged, each Egyptian family lost a firstborn horrible kind of situation of what's going on. But it's an undisputed historical event. There's records of it in the Egyptians. Even Josephus writes about this period of time when the Jewish people got up and left. The archaeological records show it. There were Jewish people in Egypt, and then there weren't, and there's no battle that happened. They got up with boldness, and they walked out the door. And the Bible gives us kind of a detailed account on how that happened. I love that it says, on their gods, because God's power gets highlighted. Moses is writing it up that way. And uh, there's this, these little notations that we're going to see where Moses throws in these notations where we get to see what Moses think was, thinks was important. And again, in context, this is what Moses thinks is important to report to the king. And I'll come back to that point, but just when he puts these notations in, this is the stuff Moses wants to tell the king about. Even though there's no king, he's doing it at the command of the Lord God Almighty. So that he's writing a document for a spiritual God. It's really interesting. Um, verse 5. The children of Israel moved from Ramses and camped at Succoth, which means booths, booths or tents. Uh, they departed from Succoth, and if you want the chapter on that, Levi, or Leviticus uh, 23 talks about the Feast of Booths, where they celebrate this, and they honor it. They camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness, and they moved from Etham and turned back to pi Hareath. These are Egyptian names, which is east of Baal-Zephon. Baal-Zephon, then, is a Canaanite name. They just crossed a border there. They camped near Migdal, and they departed before Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea. This is kind of a miracle, if you remember. The sea parts, and they walk right through it into the wilderness. Interesting that Moses doesn't really tell the story because look who he's reporting to. You know, God did it. He doesn't need to report that story there. But we got it back in Exodus. They went three days' journey into the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah, which means bitter, the, the, the bitter pools of Marah. That's in Exodus 15, if you want to go back and listen to that one. They moved from Marah and came to Elam, which means palms. So there's some palm trees. And look at the little note Moses puts in here. At Elam were 12 springs of water and 70 palms, so they camped there. Just kind of an odd note. gives a little insight into the personality of Moses. He really liked this place. It was like a vacation resort to him. So they camped there. Uh, these are the only people on earth that don't have a homeland. That's one way to think about the Israelites. Think about it. Every other people group on earth has a homeland where they kind of formed their kingdom and started. The very first instances that we see Israelites, they're camping in tents. And I'm not talking about Abraham and his family. I'm talking about Israelites as a people were birthed in the side of another country, and then they were campers for 40 years. So go camping. And it's unique that we still have a nation on earth that that's their history. They are truly exceptional in, in that sense. 
the only God-made nation on the planet. It's kind of neat. So, a spiritual journey moves from bitter to soothed, if you want to look at it that way. I'm not going to do that much of that tonight, but if you think about going from Mara to Elam, there's this transition from bitter to, to soothe, soothed or soothing. Um, there's some of that here, and if you really want to kind of go nuts on that, you're welcome to. I'll give you the Hebrew meaning of each of the words, and you can piece them together as you please. Um, but I didn't see that Moses was making a clear attempt at trying to tell a story through those words like I have in other passages. Verse 10, they moved from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped by the wilderness of Zin, which means flat. They journeyed from the wilderness of Zin. I'm sorry, that one, that particular one means uh, clay or thorn. They camped at Dafka, which means knocking. It's the only place we see some of these names in the entire Bible. And in fact, in all historical record, about 75% of these names are names that we just don't see anywhere else but this chapter. So Dafka is one of those. Uh, they departed from Dafka and camped at Alush, another one of those, which means kneading bread. They moved from Alush to, and camped at Rephidim, which means rests or supports. From there, there was no water for people to drink. They departed from Rephidim. Uh, and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. Remember, um, if they, the departed at Rephidim was the first major attack where the Amicalites attacked them. So you see how fast we're moving through this history, right? So Moses there lifted his holy hands and saved the people, if you remember the story. Uh, it's the first year that this, then the first 15 verses account for just the first year of their journeys as a nation. Most of it then, the rest of the time that we're out is at Sinai, where they get training, they get saved, and then they get training, right? And that's kind of the right order for a nation to go through, or even a human heart to go through. Get free from the slavery, and then get in the word and start getting training. And that's what the Israelites did. They got saved, then they got the law or the word of God, and they started to learn the word of God and get fed. It's amazing how God gives grace to newly saved people. You get refreshed, you get fed, you get rested, you just get blessed by the Lord, and then you become somebody that's more abundant in your life too. So they move from uh, Egypt and they end up in the wilderness of Sinai and now they're gonna battle with their flesh. Um, I always like these scenes where you get people that like get training before they get into the battle, right? I mean, these old like, the old Westerns used to do this. They'd train the townspeople to defend themselves and they'd set up booby traps everywhere and they would get into it. And I like that image. I don't know why it stirs my heart. And then I read that and that's like, that's kind of what they're doing at Sinai is they get saved out of Egypt, all these miracles, and then God starts training them in a boot camp. You're going to learn the word of God and then they're going to make their mistakes. And you know the scene where the samurai is training the young Padawan learner and they make mistakes and then they get their knuckles cracked by, and then they learn and they do it in Lion King too, right? And he says, you know, the past might hurt, but at least you can learn from it, those kinds of things. So Israel's in that mode right now where they're getting stronger, the climax is getting ready, it's like Rocky eating his eggs and running up the stairs, and they're doing that kind of thing. And in the military record, that's kind of a fitting thing. Um, and there's just that idea that they, they have enemies out there, the Amicalites, but now they're going to train and they're going to get ready, and then there's going to be more of those kinds of battles to come. I also want to, before I get too far into this, and I'm trying to space out the traveling thing with just kind of these things, I want to read that whole passage. I keep mentioning 1 Corinthians 10, but listen to how Paul sums all this up too. And he, he even says, I don't want you to forget. This is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. And if you're flipping there in your Bibles, hold your thumb there because I'll come back to a few more verses later on tonight. 
I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. Don't forget about this stuff. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. And in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God forgets. Paul asks us to remember this as a warning, that these things are happening as a warning to us. Right? The whole point of the book of Numbers is that as they're doing all these things and they fall short of God and choose to take other paths, God just moves on and he works with the people that do want to serve him. That should be a warning to us. That's what Paul's saying. These narratives should be a warning to us that what happened to them can easily happen to us too if we fall away. So mark these things. Mark this training moment that they go through. So that's the end of the first stage. Verse 16 is the beginning of the next stage of the journeys, right? So now they're at Sinai. They moved from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hadava. That's uh, moving from, the, from Exodus all the way to Numbers 10 in one sentence. There's a worship system that happens in there. There's trials. They backslide. They got 40 years of just troubles. Remember the complainers, the grumblers, the rebellions, earth swallowing people, snakes biting ankles, all that kind of thing. None of that gets put into the official military record. All of this record is about what got done, not what wasted their time. And I think that's pretty cool. So when we look at our life or we look at the official record of our life, God really doesn't care about the backsliding. Not that you shouldn't wrestle through that and get through it as quick as you can. What matters is when you actually do things and when advancements get made and when you mature and when you grow and when you do submit to the Lord. Those are the things that get reported. And that one sentence in 16, just boom, that just erased a ton of history for Israel that we just got done doing in the same book of Numbers. And in, from the official record, those wrongs are just forgotten. And I think that's beautiful. Verse 17, they departed from Kibroth Hadava, the graves of lust, and camped at Hazaroth, which means settlement in Numbers 11. They're so carnal and worldly here that God, you know, they wanted food and God just said, fine, you can have all the turkey you want. And then they glut out on turkey and they all fall asleep during Bible study because that happens. No, they actually died because they, they ate so much and then it killed them. Miriam becomes a leper here. Remember that story? So they depart, which uh, oh, I'll talk about this too. Every one of these verses says they depart, which in the Hebrew is naka, which means to pull out or to lift up as though you're lifting up a tent stake. You're pulling up camp. And then when it says they camped at, the Hebrew for that is chana, which is the opposite, to decline, to bend down, or to set something down into the ground. So it's kind of interesting because in my version of the Bible, they keep changing the words. They'll say they moved in verse 16, and then they say they departed in verse 17. It's the same word. Naka, and it's, it's the Hebrew ch, chana, or something. I can't pronounce it. Um, but it's naka chana, naka chana, it's the whole chapter. So when you, if you have different words thrown in there to make it more lively in the English or something, you're losing the track that this is a legal document. It's not supposed to be interesting. You know, it's the same word every single time, to lift up, to set down. So they lifted up, verse 18, from Hazaroth, and they set down at Rithma. They departed from Rithma, they camped at Rimen Perez. They departed from Rimen to Perez, if you want to know, it means pomegranate. And they camped at Libna, which is, means pavement. 
Why would you call a city pavement? Because back then pavement was the stuff. You were a real city when you got paved streets. So the city of Libna is a big one. It's a Canaanite city. It's one of kind of the regional capital cities of the Canaanites. Um, Joshua 10 is, they're going to fight against Libna and they're going to take this city down. But at least at this point in the journey, there doesn't seem to be any conflict there. There was no record of a fight at Libna. So it means that as they're traveling through the wilderness, they were getting along with the other tribes around them at that period of time. And there is a season where Israel gets along with its neighbors just fine. It's when they start getting holy and build a tabernacle and start wanting to set up a temple. That's when they start to have more problems with their neighbors. So they moved Naka from Livna to encamped at Rizna, which means ruins. Um, they journeyed from Rizna and camped at Kelatha. And they went from Kelatha and camped at Mount Sefer. They moved from Mount Sefer and camped at Harada, which means fear. Many of these uh, are, again, these are the only time we see these towns. And, and archaeologically, we haven't dug up a lot of these towns, or there hasn't been a, a memory of these. Um, verse 25, they moved from Harada and camped at Machheloth, which means assembly place. They moved from Akemoth, they camped at Tahath, and they departed from Tahath and camped at Terah, which means, those two words mean low station and station. So these are like kind of desert wells in the middle of nowhere. So they went from here to there. They moved from Tra, camped at Mithka, which means sweetness, probably because of the water. They went from Mithka and camped at Hashmona, means fatness. So they went from sweet to fat. They departed from Hashmona and camped at Moseroth, which means bonds. They departed from Moseroth, camped at Bene Jakan, sons of twisting. They moved from Bene Jakan and camped at Hor Hagigad, Hagidgad, which basically means the cave of Gidgad. And ironically, Gidgad means like a hole in the wall. So I like the fact that in this military record, Moses basically says, we went from, uh, we went from the sons of twisting to a hole in the wall, right? <laughs> so, hey, God, we just traveled through the wilderness and, it was, and we stayed at places that weren't always that grand. Sometimes it was sweet. Sometimes it was a hole in the wall. And if you think about what God, where God lets his people journey, I think that's encouraging because sometimes we have days where we feel like we just spent our spiritual life in a hole in the wall. In other days, it was sweet. And for God, that's just part of the journey. It's part of how he trains us, part of how he coaches us. So they went from Hor Haggadah and camped at Joth Batha, which means pleasantness. Uh, it gets brought up again in Deuteronomy 10 because there's a great river there. There's a series of rivers. They moved from Jothbatha and camped at Abrona Passage. The other entertainment for tonight is you get to hear me try to pronounce all these. They departed at Abrona and camped near Ezion Geber. They moved from Ezion Geber. By the way, Ezion Geber is a big town for the later kingdom of Israel. This is their shipbuilding town. So Solomon in 1 Kings 9.26, and there's a couple other references. Uh, Ezion Geber means the backbone of man. And this is where Solomon builds his shipping fleets. And so there must be trees nearby to do that. And there's waters in which they can kind of roll ships out. But when, when Israel reach, it reaches its peak under Solomon, Ezion Geber is actually a pretty big deal town for them. And they camped in the wilderness of Zin. Uh, this is at, at the end of this section in 36. That second camping at Zin is where they spied out the land. Uh, Miriam's going to die here. She got leprosy at the last stop. She dies at this stop. Uh, Moses hits the rock here. Um, this is which is the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh, which means holy. Um, so this is kind of a big stop for them. But again, no mention of any of the, the mistakes that they made. They got from here and they ended up here. And the mistakes just don't get mentioned. 
They moved from Canaan and camped at Mount Hor, and on the boundary of the land of Edom. Geographically, we just made a big giant circle. And I could walk you through all that, but essentially we just went in a giant circle and came right back to where we started. So congratulations, Israel. They asked to pass with Edom, and in Numbers 20, verse 18, Edom says, you shall not pass. Quote. Um, so Edom doesn't let them do that. Verse 38, then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord, and he died there on the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. A Mount Hor, by the way, in, interpretation-wise, is, is called the Mounty Mountain, which I just think it's not very creative naming that we got going on here. It's literally a Mount Mountain. So um, not very creative meaning, just double use of the word. Aaron's passing is really the first key landmark that we have in this narrative that the important thing is one of the two generals just died at this location, at this time, on this day. Everything else kind of, we skip all of that. But Aaron's passing, that first generation dying, and symbolically speaking, Aaron represents that first generation gone. Uh, that gets brought out. Um, again, no mention of Aaron's mistakes. Remember, he was in the middle of the golden cow thing, which was a big deal in Exodus. No mention of his backsliding, no mention of him kind of bringing Miriam and being one of the two complainers, none of that. That at the end of Aaron's life, what goes in the official record from the, the general to the king remembers none of Aaron's wrongs. At the end of his life, he's seen as a loyal and faithful servant to the king. And that's such a beautiful thought. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There's no record of wrongs in the official record. What a beautiful, encouraging thought after last week's kind of depressing teaching, right? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and 5. Listen to this. Love is patient and kind. You know this verse. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of wrong or of being wronged. Love just doesn't act that way. And we see a really strong example of that in this chapter. What's not being said here is as powerful as what is being said. We went from here to here to here to here and Aaron died. Everything else doesn't matter. But he helped this nation move from here to here to here to here to here. Got it done. No record. And again, this is the official record that gets given to the king. And God doesn't want that in his record either because Moses was commanded by the Lord and Moses had a pretty good relationship with the Lord. And in the official record, doesn't even get written down. Verse 40, now the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south of the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. That's an interesting little notation, right? Uh, in Numbers 21, they get attacked spiritually by the, the king. This is the first battle for the new generation. There's a dedication to God here, and it marks kind of the last section. Verse 41, so they departed from Mount Hor, the mountain mountain, and they camped at Zalama, which means shady. And they departed from Zalamah and camped at Punan, which means darkness. They departed from Punan and camped at Oboth, water skin. Again, creative naming. They departed from Oboth and camped at the, the Lai Abarim, which means the ruin, ruins of Abarim. And at the border of Moab, they departed uh, the ruins and camped at Deben Gad, which means, this is interesting, the wasting of Gad. So we see our first Hebrew name at the, the Deban Gad. Um, 
all the battles that get fought in there and they the point that gets pointed out here isn't made as like a side note for Moses, but he looks at Dibon Gad and they named a location the Wasting of Gad. Why would they say that Gad's a waste? And I think you get this idea. Remember Reuben and Gad? This isn't that long ago for us. Said, we want to stay on this side of the river. And they do. And from Moses' perspective, what a waste. Here's godly, good, pure people and they don't want to enter into God's promises. They just don't care. So what a waste. And it gets named accordingly. They moved from Dibon Gad and camped at Almond Diblathium, which means hidden. They moved from Almond Diblathium and they camped at the mountains of Abiram before Nebo. And they departed the mountains of Abiram and camped at the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Boom, they're right here. They camped at the Jordan and Beth Jesimoth, which means house of desolation, as far as the Abel Acacia Grove meadows in the plains of Moab. So there are lots of places, lots of activity, activity, but they've ended up exactly where they kind of started. So tons of activity, no progress. And that's what he's reporting to the king. 38 years of wandering the desert. They had some cowardly hearts. That doesn't really get mentioned here, but they go in a big giant circle. God continues to feed them with manna. He continues to provide water for them. And God continues to sustain them through all of these backslidings and all of these journeys and all of these struggles. How beautiful is it that God still supports us when we still struggle with sin and we're still battling those battles and we're not quite ready to battle for the Lord because we're still wrestling with the flesh, wrestling with the world, and yet God stays with them through all of this and provides for them. But Moses doesn't have to report that because he's reporting to the person who provided for him. So they move in that section, they move from dark to healthy, if you want something in the words. Now at Jordan... They're here, they're set, they're ready for the book of Joshua. Like the battles are all set and this is the end of that thing. So at the end of this, the plains of Moab, you really have the end of the first addendum, right? That's the official military record document of everything that's happened since the book of Exodus. So one big giant summary. I think that's kind of fun. The next section, the second addendum starts, it really is broken into three sections if you want to break them down. This is the beginning, uh, chapter 33, verse 50, is the first section. It's going to talk about the, the instructions for the conquest of Canaan. The second section is verse 34, or chapter 34, verse 1, is the boundaries are going to get drawn out. And then verse chapter 34, verse 16, God's going to name the leaders. And we're going to do all three of those tonight just to burn through them. Uh, now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Uh, we've seen that word before. When it says from before you, it means from in front of your face. So as your enemies and opponents come up in front of your face, you're going to push those opponents backwards and you're going to move them. Uh, 52 is an interesting verse. I'm going to spend some time on that. He actually, the command of God is to drive out the inhabitants and destroy the stones, the molded images, and the high places. Do you see the distinction there? The initial command of God is not go out and slaughter tons of people. That is the command of Chemosh and other deities that were around back then in the ancient world. But God's simply like, I just want you to drive them out. And that's the command. Push them away. And what gets destroyed is the stuff that's kind of the sick, corrupt, kind of religious practices of the day. Destroy the engraved stones, destroy the molded images, 
demolish all their high places. And now the Lord, of, Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab. So God's going to use Israel to drive out and purify the land. Israel is going to be his tool on the earth to clear a, clear a piece of land and make it a holy and a consecrated people that the whole world gets to see. So that's kind of an interesting spot. Destroying everyone, God commands them to annihilate the carnal stones, the images and places. So all of these things that have to do with the Canaanite religion, that's what they're commanded to destroy. Um, we can get into Canaanite religion, but I think there's opportunities for that coming up in Deuteronomy and, and as we get into Joshua that are more appropriate. For now, we can say that the stones, the images are 3D images and 2D images of what they're worshiping, which would be violence, nature worship, and sex and pornography. Those are kind of the three big things for the Canaanite gods. The core elements of their worship then. So the high places would be places where that happens. And at those high places would be all these objects. So don't just destroy the objects, destroy the location. Like we want none of that left in our country. Um, so the war that's being commanded in this section is a war of the souls or spiritual. A lot like the last section was militarily. This is giving cause for it spiritually to do it. And I'm saying that because a lot of people critique the conquests of Israel as one of those horrible things in the Bible. So that's why I'm making a big note about this is because when we defend the Bible to people that don't believe it or don't read it really is what it comes down to. If you actually read it, the command here is to drive people out. The killing starts to happen when the Canaanites attack Israel or they don't move out. So I'll get to Canaanite history in just a little bit. Before I do, the point of Israel is to set up camp here, put the tabernacle in the middle and invite everybody in. So there's nothing here that says that if the Canaanites can't just convert and, and reject their pornography and their violence and start to live pure lives. In fact, Israel has laws that we've already read where they can welcome people into the country. And Matthew 8:11 gives us a glimpse into God's mind about the kingdom of heaven. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The point of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of heaven are not to kick people out. They're to kick people out that insist on the corrupt ways that they have. And we're going to see that continue to be a pattern. Verse 53, you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land that dwell in it, for I have given, the, given you the land to possess. So the people can claim a thing, but until God gives it to them, it's just a worldly claim. Possession is not inheritance. It's just sitting on something you don't own in the first place. Uh, Remember, the Canaanites moved in here after Abraham's family and Joseph moved out. There was a famine and the Israelites went south. But God didn't seem to think that made they gave up that land. God saying, I have given it to them in verse 40, 53 is past tense. So he's referring to something later and it's already done, even though at this point we still have 14 more years before they actually hold the land. So they're going to have about seven years to conquer it and about seven years to divide the land between the Israelite tribes. That's what's kind of ahead of them. But God's saying this in the past tense. It's already been done. Now it's just a matter of playing it out. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. The larger you shall give an, a larger inheritance, the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There is everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. They're going to use the census from chapter 26. That census established who gets the land. The sizes have been adjusted for the last 40 years. And most of the people throughout the book of Numbers, when sizes got shrunk, were because they rebelled against God. 
So the tribes have shrunk and grown and they've gone from kind of a proper plus sign to a much more cross-like shape when they're in their camp because one of the legs has shrunk and really shrunk when two and a half tribes decided to take off and take their inheritance or their possession across the river. So as God's shaped them and molded them, he's actually going to give more land to the tribes that have been blessed. This fits with Jesus's parable of the servants. The servants that are faithful with the small things, God gives them more. And that's kind of how that happens here. Verse 55, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides as they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So if you leave people in this land that are going to defy God, you're going to just have problems with it. And this is a really fascinating little piece. God tells them they're going to get an inheritance and in verse 55 uses the word but. And God only does that because he's saying, this is my will for you, but this is what's going to happen when you don't do my will. And God knows that's going to happen. So he puts in verse 55 and 56 to kind of give them that thing. So when they are irritated and that does happen, they know that this is because they chose to not do what God told them to do and they can continue to learn. So I like the spiritual image here too. The command is to drive out and dispossess anything sinful in our life. And that's a life journey. For some of us, that takes decades. Anything that's sinful in our life, we get rid of it completely. And if we don't get rid of it completely, we will have major problems. I'll flip to archaeology. <laughs> There's wonderful stuff. In July 2017 in Science Magazine, they published an article. The article says this, and I quote, It's nice to see that what we observed wasn't a fluke for our particular site, but this was part of the broader Canaanite population. This is Losef Lazidaris, reports archaeologically they're now doing genetic testing on ancient skeletons. Where were these people and who are these people? And what they're finding in this fairly recent archaeology is that there are Canaanites all over Mesopotamia. And they're like, there, here's this people of Canaan that don't seem to have a land. With Egyptians, we know where the Egyptians were. With the Assyrians, we know where they were. Persians, we know where they were. Babylonians, we know where they were. And we can dig up their cities and find their bones. Canaanites? are everywhere. And some people say, well, that's a critique because the Israelites didn't kill them all. And the Bible doesn't say that the Israelites killed them all. It says that they drove them out of the land. So the archaeological record that they're digging up with the genetic code today actually matches that perfectly, which is pretty amazing because they're all like, we just don't get why we're finding Canaanites over here in Babylon and where we're finding them up in Assyria. But it seems like there's Canaanites everywhere, but there's no Canaanite homeland anywhere. Well, the Canaanite homeland is dispossessed and they got moved and the bible gives us probably the most accurate record of that which today's science is starting to figure out so they scattered all over eventually giving uh this territory over or giving ground on it i'll go back to the spiritual thing in the same way if the church compromises with the world it begins to shrivel up because the world continues to do things to where it doesn't have the vibrancy of purity and purity is far more beautiful and powerful than sinfulness is, but sinfulness is easy, and so many churches take that path. They'd rather compromise than stand on the Word of God. And that's a hard message to hear sometimes, um, but that idea of thorns in their sides is the same passage that Paul used. 
2 Corinthians 12, 7, he's referencing this verse with the thorn. And it's we probably know the Paul verse better than we know the verse from Numbers. But this is where Paul gets it. He studied this book. Lest that I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, Paul's sin that he admits to is that he thinks pretty highly of himself and he's given to being arrogant. So God gives him a thorn in his side. In part, Paul describes it as a way for him to be reminded that he shouldn't be too cocky. And in the same way, Israel is going to be reminded for generations that they made, they didn't take care of what they should. They didn't obey to the word of the God here. And they're going to have issues with this. So God's hope is that people know him and that they don't have thorns. But the first option is clearly better. Yes, we see that in these two passages. But there's also the second option where we screw up and we do have thorns. And we have to struggle with things. Ezekiel 28:24 shows us God's heart for this. His desire is that we don't have the pricking thorns. We don't have the things in our life that bug us. Ezekiel 28, 24. This is a vision for God's kingdom. There shall no longer be a pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all those who are around them and those who despise them. They shall know that I am the Lord God. God's desire is the opposite of having a thorn is that we know that God is our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? And his desire is that we know him rather than have thorns in our life. To know God is to not know the world and to know sin. And they stand in direct contrast to one another. And I think that's just such a neat idea. The idea here is to drive that sin out of our lives, to dispossess it so that it doesn't have ownership of any part of our hearts. That's such a huge battle. No thorns. And when you live with no thorns, even for an hour, it feels glorious. A day, a week, it feels even better, right? And then you backslide and you sin and you screw up. And you're like, Lord, I screwed up again. Let me start with that next minute again and just not be lost in this stuff so that we know God versus knowing the sin that's out there. I'm going to read the rest of that 1 Corinthians where I told you to keep your thumb. And I'll start with, These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil as they did. That's why I waited till the end on this. You see what's going on here? The, the theological concept is the division between knowing God and knowing thorns. And the desire here is that we read these things as a warning, Paul says, so that we wouldn't crave evil things like the Israelites did. Or, verse 7, worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and indulging in pagan revelries. We must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites. Remember the story with the snakes? Look at God. Don't look at the snakes. Don't grumble as some of them did. And then they were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happen to them as examples for us. They're written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And we live at the end of the age. We are at that period of time and we're supposed to read the book of Numbers and be like, okay, I don't want to do that. And thank you, Israelites, for giving us this wonderful example. Paul reminds us that of each of the ways they failed, their cravings were a failure, what they worshipped was a failure, what they indulged in was a failure, what they engaged in was a failure, they tested Christ, that was a failure, and they grumbled, and that was a failure. What a short, awesome list. If I can avoid those things, I'm doing a lot better in life. I'll read them one more time. Craving stuff, worshiping stuff, indulging in stuff, engaging with stuff I shouldn't be engaging in, testing stuff, and grumbling about stuff. 
avoid that stuff. <laughs> like stick away from it and you're in a lot better shape. So like Paul, I'm just warning everybody of that. Try to avoid those things, flirt with it, and it'll own you and it'll possess you. And that thorn will always be in your heart. So don't even flirt with it. This keeps going right into Numbers 34. The division for the chapter should have been back at verse 50, right? So this just keeps going. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that you shall fall, fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Technically, the boundaries we're about to read are the promised land. I will not take a lot of time with this. So this is where we get the actual map drawn. They didn't have maps. They didn't have GIS technology. So they drew it with their words. Um, uh, you also get a kind of a map back in Genesis 15 when Abraham's walking around, but that's a really general map. Now we get the specific map. And, and the specific map, interestingly, is smaller than the general one that Abraham got. Uh, so we're filling in more specific detail. The Mosaic lands are smaller than the Abrahamic lands. And there's a divine revelation here. It's the Lord speaking to Moses in verse 1. And the land east of the Jordan is already settled, but it's not part of the promised land. You'll take note of that. This is an inheritance. We've already got that point. And Canaan is uh, um, about to be outlined. The Egyptians uh, mention the Canaanites too, by the way, but they never outlined the territory of the, the Canaanites. Another interesting kind of archaeological fact. They often, the Egyptians would outline other people's countries, and they never do that with Canaan because there wasn't. Canaanite country anymore. So here's your southern border. Southern border shall be in be from the wilderness of Zan along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Acrobim, scorpions, and continue to Zin and be south of the Kadesh Barnea. It shall go on to Hazar Adar, enclosure of glory, and continue to Asmon or strength and the border shall turn from Asmen to the brook of Egypt and shall end by the sea. So this makes a giant S along your southern border. Well, nobody's really sure where the brook of Egypt is. It's not the Nile of Egypt because we know in Genesis 41 that the Bible and Moses knows how to name the Nile River. So they don't name the Nile River here and they name the brook of Egypt wherever and whatever that is. Um, most people think that's kind of the little Sinai thing, if you know what I'm talking about. As for the western border, you have the Great Sea for a border. This shall be your western border. I like the western border. It's easy to understand. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And this shall be your northern border. From the giant sea, Great Sea, you shall mark out your border for the line of Mount Hor. And from Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath, which means fortress. And in the direction of the border shall be Zadad, mountainside. The border shall be proceed from Ziphron, which means fragrance, and, and shall end in Hazarinan, village of fountains. This shall be your northern border. You shall mark out your eastern border from Hazarinan to Sephim, no trees. Also, Sephim means bald, uh, just a side note. The border shall go down from Sephim to Ribla, fertile, and shall end in Ain, which means spring. And the border shall go down and reach the eastern side of the Sea of Chenereth, which means harps. It's the first time we see the Sea of Chenereth in the entire Bible. It is no small geographical location. Chenereth is the early name for Galilee, and Galilee is right on the border. Border shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea, and there shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. Okay, something kind of cool here. This is the kind of the end of these initial journeys. If you look carefully, 
this border, this last border they give, the end of the borders of Israel, end exactly where Jesus' story starts. So just take verses 11 and 12 and work them backwards. Jesus, remember, came out of Egypt as a child. He's baptized in the Jordan River, and then he starts his ministry at the Sea of Galilee. So Israel ends where Jesus begins. I just thought that was cute. Um, um, it also says something to the, the idea that all of this plan of God has some order to it that's a little bit like amazing. And you just kind of get stunned by how actu actually organized all this is. So the boundaries, I want to come back to the point that the boundaries are specific and they're clear. This is a tough thing when we talk to non-Christians too, because a lot of times non-Christians don't like Christianity because of the limits and the boundaries that we have as Christians and as believers. There's certain things we just, we don't do because God says not to do them. Or we don't do them because we choose purity over that. We're making a choice. So when I drink a cherry Coke, I am not drinking a Mountain Dew. And non-believers look at that situation and say, well, you're limiting yourself for Mountain Dew. And the answer is no, I really, Mountain Dew is a fine soda. No problems with Mountain Dew. But I love cherry Coke. I choose cherry Coke and I reject Mountain Dew. Now, if there's stuff that's actually bad for me, like turpentine, which used to be drank as a medicine for your stomach, horrible idea, 1920s medicine is great with this stuff. If it's turpentine, then yes, I have boundaries. I am limiting myself from drinking turpentine no matter how bad my stomach gets. I will not drink turpentine. That's not a limit. It's a boundary. And those are different. And this is, a, I think, an interesting way to talk to non-believers sometime. Or when they want to get into it and you have to get into it, you just say, look, I'm not limiting myself. I'm not cutting things out of my life that are anything other than destructive and horrible. And on some things, I choose not to do them because I choose purity instead. Because going to a family get-together is not a bad thing. That's the Mountain Dew, right? But I'm going to choose Bible study over that because this has spiritual long-term implications and that's just the thing with sugary food. So there's nothing wrong with it, and I'll go to those things the rest of the week, but I don't want to do that when I'm doing this. I choose to set Sunday aside and make it sacred, not because I'm limiting myself, but because cherry Coke is so much better than anything else that's out there, right? You understand cherry Coke is the finest of all sodas, right? Okay. <laughs> not everything I say is inspired by the Word of God. So let's get back to the Bible. Then Moses... Does that help a little bit? I just think that idea of boundaries, that God sets boundaries, is a great idea. And the fact that these boundaries are smaller than the ones Abraham had, man, if I can get so small that my boundaries are just on God, win. I got everything when that happens. So the more I can get out of my life and get focused on God, the better it gets. So I just think that's a really interesting idea. This isn't limiting the people of Israel. This is giving them everything a territory that can be pure and consecrated to God. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, what a waste, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. Past tense, they've gotten what they're going to get. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, cross from the Jericho eastward towards the sunrise. Bless you. So notice that the Moses commanded the children of Israel. And he says the Lord has commanded to give the nine tribes in verse 13. The Lord doesn't command 
that Reuben and Gad and Manasseh get that other land. Do you see the little thing Moses did there? The Lord commands this land for the nine and a half tribes. These other tribes got what they're going to get. And this is kind of that idea that Moses really had an issue with Gad and Reuben just settling for less. Um, this is set apart here, I think, in order to make a point, these verses 13 through 15. Moses goes out of his way to say this. Of all the stuff he skipped from the book of Numbers, Reuben and Gad settling for less is the thing that stuck in his craw enough, it goes in the addendum, right? And everything else, just the snakes, the rebellions, pff, all that just gets wiped away. But this thing where these good, decent people just didn't want to take God's inheritance, that bothered Moses, really stuck with him. So nine and a half get a future, shall inherit from there. And then the other two and a half do not have a future. Theirs is in the past tense. They've already got what they're going to get. The best you're going to get if you settle for less is what's already happened. You're always going to look backwards. I know churches like this. Their best days are behind them. And the people of God should always be looking to what they're going to be inheriting, what's going to happen next. And I think individually I struggle with this myself. I can't sit on the laurels and the things that God's done yesterday. I want what God's going to do tomorrow. You see the difference? It's a huge difference here. This future tense, past tense stuff, we are like that too. Two and a half parts of Israel has everything God's going to do for them is already done. The other nine and a half get what God's about to do. Don't you want what God's going to do in your life, not what he's already done? That's the cool stuff. With faith, there's nothing impossible with God. Canaanites, not a big deal. Expect it, anticipate it. There's going to be battles. But there's nothing that God can't do if he has willing servants doing it with him. One of our last images of the people of God in this book is that some look forward and some don't. That's one of the last lessons we get to be warned by. Matthew 19, 26, but Jesus looked at them and he said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Getting into the kingdom of heaven is impossible. Because he's talking about the rich man getting in. Getting into the kingdom of heaven, it's impossible with men. But with God, everything's possible. Anybody can get into the kingdom of heaven with God's power. So Moses proclaims that they're going to get what they asked for. They're going to get their inheritance. He uses the word inheritance here because that's what they're going to get. Now we get leaders being appointed to end out our teaching for tonight. Uh, this last and final part of the second addendum is that God's going to pick some leaders. Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land amongst you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun. At the beginning of the last chapter, they named Moses and Aaron. At the end of the addendums, they name Joshua and Eleazar. So we now have the two leaders have switched gears. Moses is finishing this document. He's handing it off to Joshua and Eleazar for the records, but his work is done. Like this is like the end of Moses' life, him just documenting everything, giving it to the king, handing it off to the next leaders. It's kind of sad almost. Like he knows he's going to die. So we get an executive branch with Eleazar and Joshua, and we get the formation of a three-branch government. And you shall take one leader from every tribe and divide the land for the inheritance. That's a Senate. That would be Congress. These are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. Notice that Ju Judah comes first now. So who should be first? Nobody? Reuben should be first, but Reuben, what a waste. He's not first anymore. Judah's first. 
And God already had Judah marching in the front of the army, but now Judah gets the first title for the first time in the Bible. Judah gets listed first. The lion's going to go first, and they're first in their inheritance. From the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel the, of Amihud. From the tribe of Benjamin, Eliadad, the son of Chislam. Leader of the tribe of children of Dan, Buki, the son of Jogli. I know it makes me chuckle too. I like the tribe of Dan. The sons of Joseph, the leader of the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kemuel, the son of Shiphtan, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulon, Elisapan, and the son of Parnach. And by the way, that's an epic sounding name. Leader of the tribe of the children of Issachar, Patil, the son of Azan, and leader of the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahidud, the son of Shalomi, um, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, uh, Padehel, the son of Amihud. There's our congressional branch. You got two executives. You got a whole tribe of senators or tribal leaders. Together they make the laws and they're going to make the final decision about who gets the land. So they are, between the two of them, the Congress and the executive branch. Uh, Reuben and Gad don't get a vote. Notice they're not part of the country. They are dispossessed from any vote that they might have. And God again signs names to people who lead. These are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance amongst the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. In the next chapter, you may ask, where's the judicial branch? That's going to be the next chapter. We'll do the judicial branch and we will wrap up the book of Numbers next week. We should have like a numbers party or something. Um, just a couple thoughts on, on government because it's there. It's in the Bible. It happens to be right there. Um, what's important to God and, and through Moses, because the Lord spoke to Moses, these are words of God. And who's in charge seems to matter to God because he writes it in his holy word. And he picks the leaders. So it's an odd thing that we live in a country where we get to vote for those leaders. It's foolish to think that God's hand isn't in that process. So no matter what happens on Tuesday, because I know we have people here that feel strongly politically, no matter what happens on Tuesday is going to be, I think, biblically speaking, what God wants to happen to this country on Tuesday. And in that sense, it doesn't change our mission or our calling one bit. And if the days are short, and I think they are, our job is to proclaim the good news of God to everyone we possibly can in the time that we have left, no matter who gets elected. But it is important to God, and in that sense, we should be voting. I do think that being part of government is absolutely and totally a biblical idea. These people get picked by God in order for there to be order in the country. And for God's laws to go forward, there has to be an orderly process, and God has, since the beginning, used people to create that order in a society. So it's important to do that, and it's a high calling. Some of us, at some point, may even be called to serve in a political office. It's an absolutely wonderful calling, and these people got their names in the Bible for doing that civic duty and serving in that kind of way. So that's an incredible situation to be in. So I know that's not as political as some of you would love for me to get, um, but I do think, biblically speaking, we, we should. it's no small thing that God names and organizes a government over his people. And it's no small thing for us as children of God to see ourselves in a hierarchy where there are people in spiritual authority or accountability over us. And who are those people and how do we gather those people as a church? 
And as you look around the room at your brothers and sisters in Christ, these are the people that hold us accountable. When you're in church on Sunday morning, those are the people that hold you accountable in life. And we put ourselves in those situations not to be limited, but so that we can have more order and more purity in our world and in our life. So it's a big deal. Our goal should be to anticipate what God's going to do and expect it next to be looking forward instead of looking back and to be seeking purity instead of letting thorns grow in our life because we don't know what to do. I think it's also cool that as Canaanite becomes this thorn in their side uh, for years on end, um, when God starts living in our life, he uses the same image of a plant that grows, that there's a seed that gets planted in a heart of sin, and that seed of truth and glory and majesty and beauty grows in the same way evil can grow. And it really comes down to which of those seeds is going to get fed and where we're going to put our heart and where we're going to put our eyes on. So in that sense, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, I just thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that even in your legal documents, uh, we can look at our lives and we can test our hearts against your will. Uh, Lord, help us to be um, your children. Uh, help us to be set apart and holy and consecrated for you. Lord, help us to learn from your word in, in, in every way that we can. Uh, teach us, redeem us, uh, and Lord, help us to look forward to what you're going to do next. Lord, I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. So Lord, I ask for uh, your blessing over the Twin Cities, over Minnesota, over our country this week as we go into elections. Uh, Lord, I pray that your will is done. I know it will be. Uh, Lord, help my heart to align to you. Uh, and to uh, continue to honor you in all my ways. And I pray for each person in this room. May you anoint them. May you bless them. May you help them as they struggle with the flesh, and struggle with this world. So many things around Israel, so many things around our hearts, Lord, that want our attention, Lord. Help us to, seek, to stay focused on you and your, your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.